Anyway, we're going to talk about what's the, the, the points of difference in the story, the points of commonality, and then what those, those things have, have for us, what, what we can learn from them. And kind of answering the question, so what? What's the application here? So let's start with who tells the story. It's found in the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, we, we read the Matthew text. The Mark text is out of Mark 9, 2 through 10. And then the Luke text is out of 9, 28 to 36. We're not going to read those this morning. I just wanted you to have them in case you want to read them later or look at them as we're talking. But in those three accounts, what's interesting is who wrote them. None of those three people were eyewitnesses. What's even more strange is the one guy of the Gospel writers who was there didn't tell the story. John, he was there. He was on the mountaintop. And he didn't include it in his Gospel. Just kind of odd. Now, I guess there's, one of the, there's really two arguments. I heard some people say that John never wanted to show off. And so John would have felt uneasy telling that he was one of the three special disciples. He was one of the three, the inner circle. So John wouldn't have told the story because he would have felt embarrassed. Uh, I've also heard it said that the reason that John didn't tell the story is it didn't fit into the theme that John was, was, was telling. John's gospel isn't told in order, but he scrambles things around a little bit for uh, some dramatic emphasis and for, for telling, telling the story in a thematic kind of way. Anyway, whatever it is to say, you have three guys who wrote, wrote this story who didn't see it. And so what that means is how we have to think about how they came to know this story. There's a few possibilities. Uh, begin with, though, we'll tell you as far as the timing goes, that the best theory we have is that Mark probably wrote his gospel before the other guys. And so Mark's gospel tends to be shorter. It tends to be more action-packed. He tends to not focus so much on the teachings of Jesus, but more on the action. Then the theory is that there's another source. They call it Q. Uh, it's some German word. I don't know what it is, what Q stands for. But Q is that they think that Q had the sayings of Jesus in it. So Mark and Q were there. And the theory is then that Matthew and Luke, they took those two sources and worked with it, and then they had their own stories to tell. So they told the story. And then John came along a little bit later, and he really did, he, he told it very thematically. So that's the theory. Now, as far as how, so if, if you believe that theory, and it's just a theory, then Mark's story, he would have written it first, and then Matthew and Luke, would have, when they were writing their Gospels, they said, well, this is good, but I think we're going to include a little more here and a little more here. So Matthew and Luke would have added more things. And where Matthew and Luke would have got those things is a good question. One possibility is they talked to eyewitnesses, that possibly they talked to John, possibly talked to Peter or James, that they, they heard from them what the story was. Part, possibly it was oral history. They heard these stories passed on to the generations of the church. A third possibility is divine inspiration, that possibly the Holy Spirit told them how it ha went down. We really don't know how it happened. We do know is that because of this process, and also because of the fact that each of these writers is telling the story in a way to highlight certain things, there's little differences. So all that has to say is, if you look at the differences in the accounts, I saw, when I looked through them, I saw seven things I thought were kind of significant. And some of these things are kind of minuscule, and some of them are big. But we're going to talk about them a little bit later on, we'll talk about what, maybe what some of the significance of this. So first thing is timing. Matthew and Mark, in their account of the story, this, the Mount of Transfiguration happened six days after what happened right before, and that's when Jesus was preaching and teaching in Caesarea Philippi. Uh, Luke tells, says it happened eight days. And, but also Luke says it's after these teachings, it doesn't, he doesn't give the location like Matthew and, and Mark does. 
Why and why there's a difference here, I have no idea. But it does show at least that there's different sources they're working from. Now, the more, probably more interesting and more substantive difference is how these authors tell what happened on the mountain, what Jesus looked like. And there's some similarities in the three accounts and there's some differences. Matthew, in his account, he said that Jesus' face, his actual face, shone like the sun, but also his clothing was white as light, gleaming white. That was Matthew's account. Mark's account was a little different. Mark doesn't mention Jesus' face, but Mark mentions his clothing being radiant and right, and says specifically that Jesus' clothing was so white that no launderer here on earth could make the clothes that white. It's kind of like divine bleach or something. This, Jesus was that white, this, this whatever he was wearing. That was Mark's account of the story. And again, you notice Mark, he, he, he likes the action. He likes the miracles. So he's emphasizing this and really kind of hands it up a little bit. It's so white. Now Luke, Luke is also different. Luke says the appearance of Jesus' face was transformed. But he doesn't say how it was transformed. Remember, Matthew said his face shone like the sun. Luke just says it's transformed. We don't know what, how. But then, Luke also says, like the other guys, that Jesus' clothing became white and gleaming. So, a little bit of differences in all three accounts. The one thing they all agree on was that Jesus was wearing white and his clothes were bright in some way. They're gleaming, they're radiant, there's some kind of light involved. But as for what happened to his face, other aspects, they all disagree a little bit. Okay, the third difference in these three accounts is what actually happened on the mountain. What Moses and Jesus and Elijah said. Well, in Matthew and Mark, we read that Jesus and Moses and Elijah were talking. But we don't know what they're talking about. Matthew and Mark don't tell us. Luke, though, he tells us that Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about his coming departure. Or in Greek, it was exodus that was to happen in Jerusalem. Now, that's significant. Remember the, the other reading this morning from the book of Exodus. Remember when it talked about how that Moses went up on the mountain to hear from God. And how long was he up there? Forty days. So, so this, is, this is a little bit of Luca's kind of jogging the, the hearer's memory. Think, what does this remind you of? Using this word Exodus. He's kind of, kind of hinting at there, there's a connection here. And then, of course, the fact that Moses is right there on the mountain with Jesus. Pretty powerful stuff. Now, the next thing, there's a little bit, fourth thing, there's a little bit of difference here, is what the disciples were doing, what, what happened right before this. And this is something that only Luke tells us about. In Luke, it says that the disciples were overcome by sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. So it sounds like what was happening here was that the disciples and Jesus, these three, Jesus' three closest friends, went up to the mountaintop. While they're up there, the three guys fell asleep. Jesus was still up. And then at some point, they all woke up, and then they saw this incredible vision. So Luke kind of gives us a little more detail how it all goes down. Uh, Matthew and Mark don't. And the fifth thing that's different, and this one is, the, is the most, to me the most interesting difference, maybe besides the Exodus issue, is when Peter... Remember when Peter said... Uh, I think we need to build three tabernacles, three shelters, three tents for, 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 for you guys. Peter used a different word in each gospel account to address Jesus. And this is the part that puzzles me, why there's these different words and what it means. Now, in the book of Matthew, Jesus addresses Jesus as Lord, or Greek, Kyrios. 
But in Matthew, I'm sorry, in Mark, G- Peter addresses Jesus as rabbi or teacher. And then in Luke, Peter addresses Jesus as master or apostates, which could also just be translated as overseer or boss or superintendent. Um, to me, it's real interesting that you have these these three different terms of respect used in these accounts. Now, the argument is is that in Matthew, uh, this falls in a theme of, of Jesus as Lord. This is a theme that comes up a lot in Matthew. And so the argument is that Matthew is framing this kind of way to echo his theme. Uh, now, as far as Mark and Luke, I'm not sure. Mark, what puzzles me is Mark, he was writing to Gentiles, we think. And yet he was using this Jewish term for a teacher, rabbi, so I don't know what was up with that. And then with Luke, he used just a common term for a boss or an overseer, the Pistatus. So, and I don't really know the significance of this. What to me is interesting is you have these three different terms used and kind of echoing different ideas of what Peter might have been thinking at that time. Now, we get close to the end of this. The sixth one is, what did the voice from the cloud say? Now, the voice from the cloud, there are two things that the voice said that was the same on all three accounts. One was, was that... Uh, recognizing Jesus as the Son of God, speaking to him, to Jesus as, as the Son, was in all three. And then the, the instruction to listen to him was in all three. However, it, what's different is the additional words. Now, Mark doesn't give us any additional words. He just gives us the things that are common in all three. However, Matthew, he adds the phrase, with whom I am well pleased. Remember, that's an echo to the baptism of Jesus. So Matthew is is kind of connecting these two events. So we're seeing throughout these these connections between the baptism and the connection with the Exodus. And so you see these themes echoed over and over again. And then in Luke, instead of saying, with whom I'm well pleased, God the Father, speaking from the cloud, says that Jesus is my chosen one. So slightly different variations, uh, but they're all kind of amplifying these important points. And then finally, the last thing, the seventh thing that's different is what happens after they came down, after this, this vision on the mountaintop. And each of them are real, this is where they're real different. In Matthew, we have this instruction, arise, don't be afraid. Get up, don't be afraid. That's, that's different. And I like that because it kind of gives this idea, this vision was not meant to scare the crap out of these guys, but rather to encourage them, to strengthen them in some way for what was to come. So don't be afraid. That was Matthew. That was the thing of Matthew. But also we have the that in Matthew Jesus gives orders: don't tell anyone what you've what you've seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Also, Matthew uses a really powerful word to describe what happened. Matthew says that, that they saw a vision. Now Mark and Luke don't use that word vision, but Matthew does. And so I think that's an important theme as well. Now let's talk about Mark. What did Mark say happened after this? Well, Mark, we have the same instructions. Uh, don't tell anyone what happened until, t- t- until the sun is risen. But then, in Mark, we have the disciples getting all excited about the idea of the resurrection, and they start talking. What's Jesus talking about here? And they start having a conversation about it. And that's only found in Mark, the fact they had a conversation about it afterwards. And then, most puzzling, is Luke. In Luke, Jesus doesn't give any instructions. Instead, we just hear the disciples, they don't say anything about it. They're stunned. And I kind of like Luke's wording of it, because frankly, if that happened to me, I'd probably keep quiet. I'd be like, did I imagine that? Am I crazy? Did that really happen? And knowing these other guys saw the same thing and looked at their faces, like, they must have seen it too. What, what happened? You know, I could just imagine these thoughts 
but you'd be so scared to even say it out loud what you're feeling. And so to me, that's kind of what Luca is saying. So anyway, now now we've torn it apart, unfortunately. Let's now put it back together a little bit and talk about some of the similarities, and then talk about how these stories, what, what they mean to us. Now, as far, and also let's talk about maybe what's the significance of these differences. Uh, so first of all, well, like, I'm sorry, I jumped around a little bit. I want to talk right now about the significance of these differences, because I think there's some, some significant things each of these gospel writers are telling us and what they were emphasizing. In Matthew, that word vision, I think, is important. Um, and I'll tell you, this is not original thought on this one. I've, I quote from her a lot, but I love this blog, uh, Dylan's Lectionary blog. She's an Episcopal priest. And if you ever chance, she's wonderful. Highly recommend reading her. But she says that vision is the big deal in Matthew. And she ties this to the, to the prophetic context, so the dreams and visions, and says that, that this is, by Jesus referring to this event as a vision, he's tying this to the prophetic tradition. And I, I think that's pretty accurate. But also in Matthew, we have this tying it back to the baptism with the phrase, with whom I'm well pleased. And finally, the idea, do not be afraid, is found in Matthew. That this vision is not meant to scare them, but to bless them. So that's the point he's in Matthew. Now, from Mark's account, uh, what's important to me is that because it's the earliest, probably, it's the freshest. It's the one that's where the action's happening the quickest. Uh, especially, I like the emphasis, that reference to the divine dry cleaning of how white Jesus' robes were. We also have this story right after about, about the disciples talking with the rising of the dead right away. And I think here the, the point is that Mark, he has to move the story along quicker. He's really wanting to get things on the show on the road. And so he's already having the disciples asking these questions. That Matthew and Luke kind of have it a little bit later, but Mark is happening quicker. And then finally for Luke, his difference is, one, he's the only one to talk about the Exodus, to tie it up that way. Um, and he's tying Jesus' martyrdom to the Exodus. And that's, that's interesting, because we tend to think of the Exodus as this great dramatic event where God's power was shown and the Israelites were set free and everything was good. And yet, for the Hebrews that were leaving, as they're coming up to the Red Sea and not knowing what's going to happen next, it looks an awful lot like they're about to be martyred, that they're about to be killed. And yet, they came to the Red Sea. They kept approaching it until the very last minute when finally God did act in a miraculous way. But it looked like certain death. In a way, that's what the martyrdom of Jesus is because it does look like the end. It appears to be the end. Now, you and I know the resurrection is coming, but the, but the original hearers didn't hear that, wouldn't have known that. They didn't know what was coming. Jesus talked about it, but still, no one really believes it until it happens, that the resurrection is actually possible. And so, to me, this tying of these two stories together is deeply, deeply significant. Also, um, in Luke, again, the, the, the fact of how stunned the disciples were. They didn't need to be instructed to keep quiet. They were stunned on their own by what they saw, I think, is neat. Okay, we've talked now about the differences and the significance of those differences. Let's talk about the common elements. And I'm just going to focus, there's a lot we can talk about, talk about. I'm going to just talk about four for the sake of time. The first one was all, all the accounts told about Jesus' clothes being gleaming white. And what's significant about that? Well, besides the gleaming part, now that's pretty cool, but what's significant from it from their time and their culture was rather political. Because in those days, what did kings and Caesars wear? They wore purple. They wore bright, colorful things. Even the priests in Jerusalem doing the sacrifices, doing the ceremonies, they wore bright, colorful garments. What was Jesus wearing? 
pure white. That was very much a political statement, because it was saying that Jesus was beyond the trappings of power. He was not playing the game of this world. He was on another plane of existence. He was about something different. And in the ancient world, him coming up and wearing white was, just about, was, was a very extraordinary thing from a cultural standpoint. Second common element that's important is, is that in all three accounts you have this affirmation that Jesus is the Son of God. You have God the Father speaking and saying it, just like happened in the baptism of Jesus. And this is a significant moment where for, for those, three, for the, those three, three apostles it's clicking who Jesus was, and that's significant. The third common element, and this one is one that we're going to talk a little bit what it means because it's a little bit puzzling, was Peter's very well-intentioned but dead-wrong statement. When Peter offered to set up three shelters or tents or tabernacles on the mountain, now, the big question there was, what were they actually talking about? Was, was, was Peter wanting to build three tabernacles, which would imply the Jewish idea of the great, uh, the, their traveling temple that wasn't a temple, this tent kind of structure that was where they worshipped before they had the temple, was basically Peter wanting to build three of these worship centers on the mountain, and the great sin was that Peter was putting Jesus and Moses and Elijah on the same level. Was that the problem? Or was it the fact just that Peter wanted to set up tents? It wasn't meant as a special worship thing, but it was meant as we, we should settle up here and put up, set up some tents. Well, it's a good question. Um, I'll give you the arguments for both and maybe what the meaning could be between both, but I'm not 100% certain which it is. If, Jesus, if Peter was saying to build tabernacles, as in the tent structures, I'm sorry, I'm jumping around here, uh, Sorry, uh, the word used in Greek here was skene. I think that's how you say it. I, I'm not. I'm not good at Greek, but skene. I think that's how you say it. And it could mean tabernacle. It could mean tent. So that's the challenge here. It could be used in both contexts. If it was meant as the religious structure, what the argument for that would be in Luke. Luke specifically says that Peter didn't realize what he was saying, and so that makes it implied that Peter, the great sin was that Peter was suggesting we build three worship centers to Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And one, you don't worship people like Moses and Elijah, but also that Peter is putting Moses and Elijah on the same level. And so that would be the argument based on what Luke said there. On the other hand, the argument for just tents is that it's the same word used for just tents. Specifically, if you look at Acts, remember when Paul talked about Paul being a tent maker? The word there was skene poias, and it just means tent maker. Uh, skene, tent. And so the argument is that Peter just wanted to pitch three tents. And I think to me, that's the most plausible one because Peter had no means to build a giant worship center on the mountains and let's just say nothing of three of them. But I could see them having packs and tents. That makes sense. And so I could see Paul Peter saying, I got tents here and, you know, we, we should stay up in the mountain for a while longer. I, Moses and Elijah are here. And so let's set up tents and let, let's stay here for a while. And so, to me, that's the most plausible one, but I could see the other side, too. But if that's the case, then what Peter is, basically, his mistake was he was trying to enshrine the vision. He was trying to control it. He was trying to say, you know, we need to stay up here longer instead of just taking it for what it was. In either event, in all three Gospels, you have that same story. Finally, the timing is the same in all three Gospels. Not as in the six-day, eight-day business. That's not what's important. What's important is in all three Gospels, this story is at approximately the midpoint of the Gospel. Now, it's interesting because from a, from a storytelling standpoint, it doesn't make sense. 
this is a real climax moment, a moment of God's glory being shown, of Jesus being proven to be the Son of God. And yes, happening in the middle of the story. And right after that, Jesus gets into very mundane topics of his teachings again and starts moving on with his teachings. And you see Jesus going from point A to point B, and you have more of the same. Uh, and, and then you start having the build-up towards Jerusalem. And so it's a little bit odd why the story is here. Um, to me, I think maybe the point of why it's here is a couple things. One, of course, could just be that Jesus knows what's ahead. And he wants to prepare these three closest disciples for tough times and knows that this vision can be meaningful to them in these tough times. You know, he would have known, know, might have been able to see that Peter was later going to deny him. That John, while he stuck around, he did follow Jesus. He was there at the cross. He didn't defend Jesus. And so maybe seeing this moment of glory might have been, and also Jesus telling them of the resurrection, might have been a little, a little bit of seed of hope in the back of their head to tell them, resurrection is coming. Don't lose heart. Don't kill yourself like Judas. Don't despair. Stay, stay, stay here. Wait. Things are going to get better. So maybe that's what this story is about. But I also think it's important that it's in the middle of the story like this, because it tells us that the important moments are not the glory moments. As special, as beautiful as they are, those moments when we see God in a powerful new way, that's not what's important. What's important is the hard times. What's important is following Jesus no matter what. What's important is when the persecution comes, do we stand strong? What's important is do we love fearlessly? That's what's important. And so this moment on the mountain, as beautiful and as powerful as it is, is not the most important point in, this, in, in these gospel accounts. And so to me, that's powerful. The timing helps just to remind, remind us of that. Okay, we've covered a bunch of ground as far as what's happening here, these different accounts and all that. All of this, frankly, is kind of moot if we don't talk about application, that so what question. What does this mean to us? Um, I think there are a few things we can say. One, of course, we talked about earlier was that just a moment ago is that this is not the most important moment. But it is an important moment. And in, in, the, in the story, the gospel accounts, it seems like this moment of glory was there to give encouragement to these three close friends, these three followers of Jesus, who had later become leaders in the church, to prepare them for what was to come, to help them to understand Jesus, particularly to understand Jesus as being part of the great law-giving tradition of Moses, as part of the great prophetic tradition of Elijah, to see that, that Jesus is, is the culmination of all these things and that God is at work in a powerful new way. And so I think for us it's the same way. The story reminds us that the story is bigger than we can imagine. There's streams that, that come in and out and that we are a part of that. And that just like those guys in the mountain, when, when we hear the story, we can take heart. I think another thing we can take from the story was that closing message of what God the Father spoke from the cloud. After he said who Jesus was, I, then what did he say next? Listen to him. That's important. That's key. It's too easy, for, and, I, and a lot of times when I hear people talk about Jesus, they talk about moments like, like this, the moment of glory. Or they talk about the cross, and as important as the cross is, it's still... You can't see the cross without seeing Jesus' teachings, without seeing his life. It's the wholeness of it that's important. And when Jesus, when God the Father tells us, tells the disciples, tells us, listen to him, he's reminding us that the most important thing is what Jesus said. That's 
That's what being a Christian is all about, is following Jesus' teachings. And we have that reminder yet again. Listen to him. Also, in this story, we're reminded, things are not what they seem. What I mean by that is that when the, when the disciples are going up the mountain, it sounds like Jesus had just been to a, a powerful time of teaching back in Caesarea Philippi. He's wanting a retreat. He brings along his closest friends. They're going up the mountain. And, you know, as you've been climbing through mountains all day, you're not going to look too great. You're going to be kind of grimy and sweaty and clothes are going to be dirty. And disciples, they're like, oh, Jesus, taking us on another mountain climbing trip. Oh, boy. So they, they take a nap. They're tired. They're sleeping. When they wake up, they see this vision. They see Jesus not wearing the dingy, grimy clothes he wore before, but now he is transformed. Now he is glowing. Now his clothes are white and bright and gleaming. And then a few minutes later, he's back to how he was. It's crazy, but I think that the point here is that things are not what they seem. This moment on the mountain was a moment of seeing the reality that they're not seeing. That the, the, the reality here on earth is one thing. There's another reality that's right behind it. And at this moment, they see that, that little piercing of the veil. They're seeing what, what, what is, what really is. And that's an important thing. And the reason I say that is that, and I, I don't know how y'all feel, but for me, the last, I'd say, last few months, but particularly the last month or so, have been a pretty hard time for me. But to me, the world has looked incredibly, incredibly dark. I have not seen much hope. I've been frustrated, feeling like, these wars are going on, that there's so much suffering in the world. There's so many people I know here in this country that are suffering, friends and family that are suffering. And it felt very hopeless. And it felt like, what's the point of praying? Because, you know, God lets all this hor- these horrible things happen. Why should I even pray? It doesn't even make sense. And being very depressed, very sad, and overwhelmed by these things, and feeling not getting past what I see. And I can't deny what I see. What I saw was, the things I saw were horrible. The suffering, the cruelty that's in the world is real. I can't deny it. And yet the thing that this story would tell us that things are not what they seem. That, there, that, that there's always other things going on that we, we can't see. And that just like at this moment, the apostles, not expecting to have this moment, went up the mountain and they saw Jesus in a new light. And, and when, when a few months, maybe a year or so later, when Jesus went to Jerusalem, and they saw Jesus be killed, even then, things were not what they seemed. The story was not over. And so to me, that's an important, powerful, encouraging thing that we can all take from the story. What I want to close with is to say that I think this story is well situated in, in, in the church calendar because it's a moment of giving us a bit of encouragement before we go through what is intentionally a dark time of Lent. Lent is a time of reflection, a time of sadness, a time of mourning, a time of remembrance. And I think this moment on the mountaintop is there to to prepare us in a way for the dark times ahead and to know that that, that as we're on this path these next 40 days, that there's there's good that's coming, but it's it's not going to be easy and that's okay. And so the challenge I have for us is, is that as we enter into this time, to, to take it seriously, take it to see it as an intentional time of seeking God in the way of Jesus. Um, if you have a chance this Wednesday, I think it's the beginning of Lent, on Ash Wednesday, 
if you have a moment to, to just take some time to, to begin that time in prayer, it would be good. If you really have a lot of time, if you go to an Ash Wednesday service somewhere in Oklahoma City, it would be great. But for sure, take some time to, to enter into this time. And then to use these 40 days as a gift for us to reconnect with the story of Jesus. And to reconnect not just with the moments of glory, but also the moments of suffering, the moments of sacrifice, and to know that we're part of the story too.